In modern times, it can be hard to understand the full purpose of the church in our everyday culture. This can lead to focus being placed where it doesn't belong, and important parts of the role of the church being ignored. Today, Pastor Randy Crozier is teaching a message on the importance of one of those often overlooked areas, discipleship. To tell us more, here's Pastor Randy. So, this morning, we've drifted uh, from a gospel that calls on believers to be disciples, to live Christianly in the world according to terms that Jesus set down, to a kind of uh, Christian walk that we've crafted our own terms. We've decided this is the way that we like it. We've evolved what might be described as a new normal in Christianity. But what that normal is, is an abnormal normal. It's apparent. It's a departure from what the, the Lord uh, wants of us. It isn't sanctioned by Jesus. And that uh, uh, abnormal normal uh, accepts what you might call a two-tier version of Christianity. You know, a, an idea or a notion that uh, you can be in one of two categories as a believer. You can be in what the world, uh, the church world today might call the normal Christian. And the normal Christian is that Christian who is interested in, uh, in the fact that they find forgiveness and they find grace and thus salvation through Jesus Christ. And that's it, period. That's all they want. It's kind of firehouse Christianity. And I'm not, in a, for a moment this morning, disputing the possibility of being a saved believer, but not a very ardent or committed believer, because we know from the book of Colossians that Paul looked at a bunch of believers. He called them brethren, but he said, you know what, your situation is not good, and you're yet carnal, brethren. So we have that tier. We have that idea that, you know, then there's this, this kind of normal, low-key version of Christianity. And then we have a second category, and that's for the ardent, radical, all-in, kind of crazy extreme kind of believer. We treat or we, we seem to act as if you get to choose between which of those two categories you want to be in. But understand, there's no such thing as a two-tier version of Christianity in the Bible. You're either, well, you're either an abnormal Christian or you're an, a radical believer. There's an extremism that is typical of the standard as opposed to the exceptional in the Word of God. So we find ourselves uh, in that situation. It's no surprise, really, that this is the case. We are aware of what we are up against. So it's no surprise that there's a force or there's a power at work among us that's trying to restructure Christianity in a way that's not in keeping uh, with the Word of God. Uh, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. So it's no wonder when we consider the opposition that we face that we're going to be pushed or pressed. Uh, in, in a wrong direction. We're also uh, warned about Satan's predatory nature. Peter uh, writes and he says, be alert, be sober-minded, because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. Now, if you uh, received notice on your radio or something came across your television saying that a whole crowd of lions got loose in the streets in Back Bay, you probably would pay attention when you went out the door. In fact, you probably wouldn't go out the door at all. And yet we have a warning in the Word of God about the predatory nature of the enemy, and we seem to be largely indifferent to 
what we're up against in that regard. So we have a warning. We're told we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We know about his predatory nature, that he's dangerous and that he's destructive. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2 and verse 11, we're reminded that we're not ignorant. Paul says we're not ignorant, we're not unaware, or we're not uninformed of Satan's devices, his schemes, his designs, or what goes on in his mind. So we have solid intelligence. you got the CIA, and you got the Secret Service, and you got MI6 and MI5, and you got CSIS, and they're all intelligence services, and the idea is, is that they need information. And so when you receive sufficient or correct intelligence or ideal intelligence, that that gives you an advantage. That enables you to be in a position. So, you, so we've received from the Word of God all of this intelligence information relative to the enemy. So Paul says we're not ignorant. We're not unaware or uninformed. We do know what's going on in his uh, mind, you know, the schemes that he hatches and the types of things that he's uh, going to be doing. And then if you go back to Ephesians chapter 6, and the 11th verse, the verse that preceded the one that I read to you earlier, uh, Paul again says we're to put on the armor of God to do what? To stand against the wiles of the devil. So we're, not all, we're not supposed to let him push us around. We're not supposed to let him shove us into places and into situations or to lead us down paths or push us down paths that we're not supposed to go. I mentioned to you earlier that uh, we find ourselves with a species or a version of Christianity that's a, kind of an easy believism or cheap grace version of Christianity. And I said to you that I don't think it's because we dreamt it up. I, I don't think that anybody, well, uh, who's to say if anybody, but generally speaking, the overwhelming number of believers that have kind of fallen into that pattern, it wasn't because somebody sat down or they sat down and said, well, you know what, I think I'm going to go for this. I think the architect of this uh, inferior brand or version of Christian living is the enemy himself. And he's, uh, in spite of the intelligence we've received, he's been able to push us and get us into a pattern. Satan set his cap a long, long time ago to uh, render Christianity, to render the church ineffectual if he at all could. You see, that's the we're the body of Jesus Christ. We are the church of Jesus Christ, and that should infuse us with hope and inspire us with a vision and give us confidence in what can be achieved you know, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. We're not supposed to be under the foot of anybody. We're supposed to be on the top. And we have the power and the promises in order to see that happen. So, you know, uh, what's going on? Because the enemy has set his cap to do everything in his power, recognizing the danger posed to him by the church, has set his cap on rendering the church, if he can, ineffectual in terms of its practice. Now, the truth is the, the big C church of Jesus Christ has never gone down in flames. But the little C churches is a different story because sometimes we don't hold on to the full stretch or extent of the measure of God's grace and power that's available to us. So the enemy has succeeded. Sometimes in the past he's succeeded very little and sometimes his successes have been moderate and sometimes they have been great. And I think we live in a day and an age where successes are becoming larger and larger uh, all of the time. Not to give him more credit than he deserves, because we certainly have the power to turn that around through Jesus Christ. Not in ourselves. We can't craft a plan to make it happen. We're never going to write a curriculum that's going to make it take place. 
But the Holy Spirit of the living God abiding within us is everything that we need in order to be triumphant. Um, And one of the things that's happened that has enabled the enemy to get a a foot in the door or to to see some of the successes uh, that uh, he has is that, you know, there's a pattern that has become pervasive. It's everywhere through the body of Christ that we have given up on intentional, deliberate discipleship. We've fallen into this crazy mentality. It seems to suggest, at least our practice would suggest that this is what we think, that you can bring a baby into the world, throw it to the curb with a bottle and a diaper, and say, good luck, you're on your own. Come and join us, come to church. But beyond whatever you receive in the context of a service, that's it. Now, some people say, oh, well, brother, 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 now hold on, because the Holy Ghost will make the difference. Only if there isn't a scripture that tells you there's a different way to do it. I'm going to say something that's going to upset some of you. We sometimes use the Holy Ghost as a crutch. We look at things where we have a mandate in the Word of God to do a given thing, and we just cry Holy Ghost at it and think that we can wash our hands of it, and then the Spirit of the Lord is going to do it for us. Don't count on it. God never violates His own plan. It doesn't matter how many of us would like to see it that way. God never violates His own plan. You see, the mandate to make disciples falls on us. Now, we have to rely on the grace of God. We have to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to get it done. But if we simply stand back and say, well, you know what? We're just going to leave this all to the Holy Ghost. We're just going to say, well, Holy Spirit, you take over. And then we don't execute or we don't follow through on what the Bible says that we should do. Then God is not going to pick up the pieces for us. Because God's committed to His Word. Understand. You you might think, well, it would be better if the Lord did it. Well, if it's not His promise that He will do it, and if He were to violate that, then who knows what else He would violate. You might say, oh, it would be nice if the Lord would do that, even though He says in His Word, we ought to take up the slack here. We ought to step up to the plate and do this thing. We ought to be responsible. Well, if the Lord were to say, okay, I'll do that for you, what happens when there's another promise that you wouldn't like Him to violate because it's really positive in nature? How would He wouldn't violate that too? See, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and there is no shadow of turning in Him. Anything He ever said, He stands by today. Granted, there are covenantal changes, but any promise that is is intercovenantal in nature, that it goes straight across the board, it is enduring throughout all time because it is anchored, it adheres in the very character and the nature of God who never changes. And so when God says to you, go make disciples, He expects you to go make disciples. When He says, teach them, He expects us to teach them. You know, that's the responsibility that's dropped on us uh, by the Lord. And again, I say to you, I'm not telling you that we have the wherewithal to do it by ourselves. You know, that we we certainly need the grace of God and we need reliance on the Holy Spirit and we got to be praying people where none of it's going to work. But at the end of the day, we still have to step up to the plate and do the things that God calls us to do and see Him move in relation to our obedience in a way that's going to bring change. So Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and He said, All is given to me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples. Help people to learn of me, believe in me, obey my words. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even Onto the end of the age. Now, you know what? There are three branches 
to the Great Commission. That's the Great Commission, right? So you can find it in all, in all the Gospels in one form or another. John's is less obvious. It doesn't correspond linguistically or in terms of the way it's expressed exactly the same way, but it's there. So this is the Great Commission expressed in all the Gospels, but its most extended expression is found here in the book of Matthew. And when you look at this text, there are three aspects, or there are three dimensions to the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Now, I said to you last week, one of the problems that we have is that we've got this idea, we've, we've slipped into this very bad kind of thinking, this stinking thinking, that, that winning converts is executing on or fulfilling the Great Commission. It's not. If we imagine that to win converts, to see people make a decision for Jesus Christ, is the fulfillment on our part of the Great Commission, then we've missed it. Ah, listen, converts, hallelujah, the more we can get, the better. But understand that that's not where our responsibility in terms of the Great Commission stops. There are three things that make up uh, the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Number one is proselytizing. That's getting converts. Number two is baptizing. Well, we know what the baptizing is. And number three is teaching them. And it's only when all three of these things that are done are being done in the relation to the people that do come to Jesus Christ, that the Great Commission is fulfilled. What strikes me as odd, and, and, and maybe if, you know, if I kind of frame it up, you'll see the, the oddity of it yourself, is that there are three dimensions mentioned there relative to the Great Commission. We are absolutely pugnacious about two of them and almost completely disinterested in the third. Isn't that odd? Getting converts and baptizing people, we're all about that. And again, I'm not, I'm not just trying to dump all of this on you. I told you this was a rant, right? So this is just the extension of the rant. And I warned you ahead of time. And that's why I preached joy the week before. So here's the thing, right? We talked about the fact that we have an enemy. We have forces arrayed against us. We understand his, his predatory nature. We are not ignorant of his devices. And we're told to stand up and, and, and to resist them, to don the armor of God to make it happen. So here's the thing. If you're the enemy... And you perceive the significance of the church. You realize how important the church is to the success of God's purpose in the world. You are very naturally going to want to do everything in your power, if you were the enemy, to thwart the success or progress of the church. If on top of that, you know about the Great Commission, and the enemy does understand the significance of the church, and believe me, the enemy knows about the Great Commission. And so, you know about the importance of the church, and number two, you understand the nature, the significance of the Great Commission. But you also know that in your effort to thwart the progress of the church, the likelihood that you can absolutely write out the Great Commission is slim and none, right? Because it's in the Bible. So what are you going to do if you're the enemy? You're going to try to muddy the waters. You can't just say, don't pay attention. I mean, the Great Commission is too significant. It just looms too large in the Gospels in order to forget it. So what do you do? What do you do? Well, you have to think strategically. So you say to yourself, well, this is a three-part commandment. It involves proselytizing and baptizing and teaching or discipling. This is a three-part commandment. So what do you do? Well, you pick one to kind of use whatever influence you have to get people to forget and let them think lots about the other two. I mean, it's good odds, right? If you took two away, if you kind of swamped two or covered or cloaked or worked at trying to deceive people relative to two, they're more likely to notice. But when you go the other way, just monkey up or mess about with one and leave the other two alone. And then which one do you pick? You want to be strategic, right? If you're the bad guy. You can only mess about with one of these three parts of the commission. Which one are you going to pick? Are you going to pick convert, converts, baptism, or teaching people? 
Well, converts, you're never going to get that one, right? Because we're all about winning people to Jesus Christ. I mean, that screams from the pages of the book, not just from the Great Commission. That's start to finish, right? That one's just too big a target to hit. Baptism, let's be practical, right? How much damage are you really going to do to the overall body of Christ if people aren't getting wet? I'm not diminishing the significance of baptism for a minute. But on practical terms, if you're the bad guy, and you're trying to deal a death blow, or at least a a, a blow that's going to hinder the church, which one are you going to target? Conversion? It's too big. You're never going to be successful with that. Baptism? It just isn't going to make that big a difference. Discipleship. Go after discipleship. Because you see, really, there is no Christian living absent discipleship. Like I said, you take a baby. Our grandson was just born. We just love to see pictures of him. I think we're going to go Monday and see him again. When that little guy was born, how do you, right, this is just for, to get your thought, because everybody knows the answers to this question, right? Wouldn't it have been crazy if Brittany and Chad had said, well, here, guy, here's a bottle, here's a bag of diapers, and uh, we'll see you six days from now. Good luck. When you get here six days from now, we'll love on you and hug on you, and we'll just coo and awe and make all kinds of little baby noises for you, but you know what? Six days, you're on your own. Come back on the 7th and you're okay. You're good to go. Or, you know what? We got this thing going on on Wednesday. You could drop in on that too if you want to come in. But, but other than, than an hour or so on Wednesday night and a couple hours on Sunday morning and a couple hours on Sunday night, you're on your own. Well, first of all, it would be a crime, right? My daughter and her husband would get arrested. That would be child abuse. But we've come to a place in the church where in a large part across North America, that's exactly what we do. There is no intentional discipleship. There's lots of accidental discipleship. You just kind of stumble into it, but no intentional discipleship. Let me talk to you a little bit about something that's in the text. Okay, so in verse 18, it says, go and make disciples. The word that's translated or rendered in English, go and make disciples, can also be translated teach. But then when you drop down to verse, is it 19 or 20? It says, teaching them. Talks about teaching them to observe all the commandments that I've given. So make disciples, teach them. Make disciples could be rendered teach. But you understand that they are two different words. They're related words, but they're two words with dramatically different senses. In the first case, the word that could be translated teach really means make proselytes. The only measure of instruction that's required in order to make a proselyte is to give them the basic information of the gospel. Make them understand that they're sinners, that Jesus Christ died to resolve the problem of their sin, that they need to put their faith in Jesus Christ to be saved, and then grace will bring redemption into their lives. That's all of the instruction that is required to proselytize or to win a convert. So, In the first instance, when it says, make disciples slash teach them, it's only talking about giving them very basic gospel information and leading them to make a decision for Jesus Christ. In the second instance, however, when the word teach is used, it's an entirely different word with a totally different sense. And when you get down to that point, then the word calls for careful and detailed instruction. So in the first instance, it's go and make converts, proselytize people, give them the basic gospel information, and lead them to make a decision in Jesus Christ. Bang! Step one, hallelujah! Step two, get them baptized. 
Get them to identify officially with Jesus Christ. To make a public declaration to everybody that I'm now a follower of Jesus. Is that done? Are we, have we got it cleared up? No. Discipleship is still not over. Step three is start to offer them detailed, careful, and deliberate instruction to the end that all that Jesus Christ commanded becomes part of their experience in life. You see, um, the word teaching there, it means to impart instruction. It means to deliver educational discourses. It means to instill or to gradually but firmly and deliberately establish doctrine in somebody's mind. It means to enjoin upon others observances or ordinances or opinions or particular precepts. To put these things into their thinking. It means to explain and expound at length in order to affect long-term massive transformation in a person's life. That's what we don't do. Not in North America anymore. We get them converted. We get them baptized. We get them to come and join us a couple of times on Sunday. But what are we doing to make sure that their lives are thoroughly and fully transformed for Jesus Christ? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13 says this, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Hallelujah, that's nice, isn't that? Wow. Why? I mean, do we just get to make up our minds about how these people are going to be utilized, or what role that they're going to play in the church? No, we don't. So God gave us some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to build up the body of Jesus Christ until we all attain a process word under the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God until we become mature men and women in Christ to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ. What he's saying, and there's no arguing it, is that in the body of Christ, because God has duly gifted us, there should be constant effort being made, perpetual, deliberate, intentional investments in the body of Christ so that we are all steadily moving forward in Jesus Christ. That's the expectation. That's why we are thus gifted. Paul wrote to Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, second letter, and the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. What I've given you, you give to somebody else and make sure that those people in turn give it to somebody else, passing it along. And again, it's a deliberate transmission of the faith. Nothing accidental about it. It's about uh, an intentional investment. You see, we are we're supposed to be teaching the commands of Christ. We're supposed to be expounding God's truth to his followers. We're supposed to be pressing upon the body, the necessity of obedience. We're supposed to be assisting people in applying that truth, understanding how it works in given situations, and then holding out an expectation that they're going to honor it, doing all in our power to make it happen. John Calvin, who is not typically somebody that the average people outside of the, the uh, reform tradition turned to, but still he was a smart man. John Calvin said that those who purport to be part of the true apostolic tradition, if 
they do not execute on the business of teaching in the body of Christ. And this is the, you know, the deliberate, intentional endeavor to disciple people. He said this, he said they act wickedly and they act falsely. There's a failure on our part. Churches that make converts but do not make disciples do not fulfill the Great Commission. i got to stop here, but I do want to say this. You see, the objective of discipleship is really quite simple. The objective of discipleship is to move people from one end of a spiritual growth continuum, a line, from the beginning to the opposite end. And ultimately, and ideally, to make sure we are all constantly moving. Because the thing about the growth continuum, the spiritual growth continuum, is that while it has a beginning, it has no end. Not in this lifetime. And so it's kind of like this, is is that you move people from indifference to Christ to exploring Christ. That's part of discipleship. You move people from exploring Christ to growing in Christ. That's part of discipleship. You move them from growing in Christ to becoming close to Christ. And you move them from being close to Christ to having their whole lives centered on Christ. And then you move them from having their lives centered on Christ to having their lives intensively and progressively more and more and more centered on Christ. That's our responsibility. That's every church's responsibility, is to assume the mantle of discipleship. And when you think about what the Great Commission really says, that it's a threefold proposition, conversion, baptism, and teaching. And that teaching is not just, God bless you, here's your hat, what's your hurry. It is the intensive inculcation of the truth of the Word of God, of the message of Jesus Christ in all of its dimensions, put into a person's life so that from start to finish through all their days, they're moving nearer and nearer and nearer to Jesus Christ. It is the equipping of the saints for the work of service and so that maturity is achieved increasingly more and more. And if we are a New Testament church, we're into it. And ultimately, what that means And here's where the rubber meets the road, is that like most churches, we need to up the ante. Like most churches, we need to embrace a commitment across the board as a congregation. I believe this. I do. I believe it with all my heart. But if I were the only guy who were to believe it, or if there were three other people who kind of got on board with it, then it's not going to make a difference. What has to happen is we need to begin to become a church that is committed to the idea that we are going to be a discipling church. I mean, that we're going to invest in a very strategic and a deliberate and intentional fashion to make disciples so that we can look at our church and say, well, you know what? We are confident that we are doing everything in our power to see to it that everybody here is, if they're willing, moving closer and closer and closer to Jesus Christ. None of us are just in our seats, marking time. And inevitably, that also means changes in some way. Universal acceptance and a willingness to embrace the changes that come with not doing what I want you to do. Now, you you can dispute it, but I've tried really hard to make sure that in relation to every one of these things, I'm telling you what the Bible says. I'm, I'm trying to share with you something about what the Word of God expects of us, not what I'm saying. And in that regard, anything that you think comes from me, if you think, well, that's debatable, it is. If it originates with me and me alone, my kind of thinking, my ideas, 
well, feel free to give it a pass. But we don't have that same liberty where the Word of God is concerned. We can't say, well, you know what? I'm not really into this intentional discipleship thing. I don't think that it's important. I think it's, a, it's, it's an overblown case, and it's the book. It's what being a New Testament church is. In fact, there are some people who believe that if, you, if a church doesn't disciple, no, I'm just, this is a theory. Some people believe that if a church doesn't disciple, it's not a legitimate church. Now, I think that's a little extreme, but it's a thought to throw out there. Thanks for joining us. If you've joined late or just want to hear the entire message again, you can do that. Full episodes are available on our website at cviewflowgospel.com. Once you're there, you can subscribe to Christ is the Answer as a podcast and have it downloaded automatically to your phone or tablet every week. Christ is the Answer is a production of the Seaview Full Gospel Church in beautiful Back Bay, New Brunswick. If you happen to live nearby and aren't attending church currently, we'd love to have you stop by. Service times are listed on our website, or you can call the church office at 506-755-3592. Until next week, remember, Christ is the answer.